This is Patrick Rao, Director of Strategy and Research for Natural Gas Intelligence. And welcome to our second quarter 2020 North American Energy Sector Quarterly Earnings Conference Call Takeaways podcast, which we're going to do with more of a slant towards natural gas. That makes sense because the name of our company is Natural Gas Intelligence. We're going to try to do something a little bit different this quarter. Instead of jamming all our takeaways into one main podcast, we've decided to break these into four separate ones. This main one will focus on general observations from the sector along the lines of the coverage we give on our daily and weekly gas price index, natural gas intelligence, and Ford Look products. Our other three podcasts will be sponsored by our sister publications, Shale Daily, LNG Insight, and Mexico Gas Price Index, and each will focus on those particular areas. For more information on these and all of our services, please go to www.naturalgasintel.com backslash podcast. So turning to the second quarter here, practically every call this quarter, as you can imagine, started with a quote along the lines of, this was the worst quarter in the modern history of the oil and gas industry. Global crude oil demand was down on average 20 million barrels per day during the quarter. Lower commodity prices and the fear that COVID-19 could impact prices for the foreseeable future have led producers to drop U.S.-focused rigs and frat crews by a respective 69% and 86% from February 28th through August 14th and to a number of high-profile asset impairments and bankruptcy filings. Now, the good news is most companies throughout the energy patch believe the market either has reached or is close to reaching a bottom. To that end, we note that the U.S. rig count has now declined by less than five rigs per week each of the last eight weeks, and that the frack spread count has actually ticked up to 70 after bottoming at about 45 on May the 22nd. As such, the majority of the firms in our coverage universe were able to restore at least some form of quarterly financial guidance, so that's certainly a step in the right direction. However, don't necessarily expect a sudden rush to resume activity here. In fact, the consensus seems to be just a slight pickup in activity during the third quarter, led by more completion than drilling, to be followed by a seasonal slowdown during quarter number four. Much of the shuttered oil production has returned, with no real degradation to horizontal wells, so that's good. But the lack of drilling is having a noticeable impact on overall oil and gas output. The overall first-year decline rate in the United States is somewhere between 25 and 30 percent, so a lack of drilling certainly will put downward pressure on production. To wit, U.S. crude oil production was 13.1 million barrels per day in mid-March, but is currently now just 10.7 million barrels per day. Natural gas production peaked at roughly 96 BCF a day at the end of February, and that's more like 87 Bs today. Silver Bowl Resources noted in its second quarter 2020 investor relations presentation that natural gas production is expected to be 10 BCF a day lower exiting this year than it was coming out of 2019. Now, obviously, activity will have to pick back up if producers want to close this gap. As noted before, the current U.S. frat crew count is about 70, and estimates for that count exiting the year range between 100 and 130 with Liberty Oil Field Services noting that the industry will need to get back to more like 190 to 200 frack spreads just to keep production flat in 2021. And seeing that the consensus 2021 production forecast for the United States is about flat year over year, that would lend some implicit credence to that call for 190 to 200 frack crew spreads. So uh, let's do some quick back-of-the-envelope math here. For the two years prior to the outbreak of COVID in March, the U.S. frack spread count averaged about one spread for every 2.4 rigs. Now, assuming that ratio holds, the aforementioned increase in the frack spread count would imply the U.S. rig count would grow by 300 rigs at some point next year, 
and by more than 100 rigs by the end of this year. Now, while that 2021 rig count may, in fact, be achievable, we highly doubt the U.S. rig count is going to increase by that much before this year is through. In fact, Helmer campaign certainly doesn't see anything close to that happening. And considering they are a top one or two U.S. Uh, market share player, they have particular insight into this. This means that uh, our basic math certainly could be off somewhat, but it also strongly suggests that duck counts will have to come down here during the second half of 2020 and into next year to uh, justify that increase in frack spreads. And that's really our main takeaway here. So just keep a real close eye out on those duck counts over the next few months. As to where short-term commodity prices may go, Bloomberg lists consensus natural gas prices for 2021 and 2022 at $2.50 and $2.58 per MMBTU, respectively, with $45.52 for WTI crude oil over the next two years. And we note that that $52 estimate is above the current $46 NYMEX price. So shifting a little bit to the longer term now, we note that the term lower for longer doesn't just necessarily apply to commodity prices. The same now holds true for U.S. production growth. And here's some evidence to support this thesis, all of which is derived from second quarter conference call commentary. Halliburton, the oil field service company that has been perhaps the most emblematic with the U.S. oil and gas industry, noted it expects North American production growth to be lower for the foreseeable future and is in the process of shifting its incremental focus from the U.S. to international markets. Schlumberger is also accelerating the restructuring of their North American business with significant reductions to their fixed and infrastructure costs. Back to Halliburton here. They expect to lower its CapEx as a percentage of sales from double digits to more like 5% to 6% going forward, down from double digits again in the more recent past. We looked at consensus CapEx spending for 2020 and 2021 for a number of different U.S.-focused oil field services and midstream sectors, and we really see that same trend emerging in those subsectors as well. Kinder Morgan, which is one of the leading natural gas pipeline companies in the United States, now no longer believes it will need to spend between 2 to $3 billion per year on CapEx because of lower expected production growth. Now, as noted before, we believe the current consensus estimate for 2021 U.S. oil and gas production growth is flattish year over year. So let's call this maintenance mode. And in fact, to the extent that U.S. producers did give longer-term guidance during the quarter, it really ranged between 0 and 5% per year. Now, there are several things that are impacting this lower production growth range in our view. One is access to financing is low, which I'll touch upon more in the consolidation section here in a moment. A second, investor sentiment. The idea or the focus among investors now is on generating positive returns on invested capital and protecting the balance sheet. There's also a growing focus on reinvestment rates, where the percentage of cash flow as a company reinvests in its business. This was a really widely discussed topic, particularly among permian producers in this quarter. And I want to spend a second on this and be a financial geek in the process because this is an important concept. So according to financial theory, the growth rate for a company's operating income is reinvestment rate multiplied by its return on invested capital. Investors don't want producers to outspend cash flow any longer, and in fact want E&P companies to return cash to them in the form of dividends and share buybacks, which means they may want reinvestment rates to be less than 100%. Well, they do want them to be less than 100%. Many producers are talking about reinvestment rates more of 60 to 80% going forward. So mathematically, here's a little example. If we assume an industry ROIC return on invested capital of 8%, which may be a little bit high right now, but let's just go with it, and a reinvestment rate of 70%, that implies a growth rate of 5 to 6% for operating income. 
If we further assume SG&A grows with revenue, then that operating income growth really becomes a function of revenue growth. Revenue is determined by price times quantity sold. So if we assume commodity prices stay flat, then production growth is 5 to 6% per year in this scenario. If we assume commodity prices will rise and the current WTI crude strip is in contango, then expected production growth would be less than that 5 to 6% range. Now, of course, this is just a simple example, but you can see how this will help U.S. production, oil and gas production growth grow at the 5% or lower level going forward. Still, another thing that can impact future U.S. production is that many producers indicated it would take sustained WTI and Henry Hub prices above $55 and $3 to grow production. But uh, if that happened for long, we know that OPEC Plus has now proven it may not hesitate to act. And we certainly saw this, what happened earlier this year with the Saudi-Russian price war. So this really leads to the question, could U.S. production turn negative in the midterm? And perhaps it might. But we note that many North American producers have reserve-based lending facilities, minimum volume commitments on midstream assets, and even dividends to pay, all of which, which makes it at least maintaining production all the more important. So really, however you slice it, it certainly does appear that U.S. oil and gas production growth will be slower going forward, perhaps no more than 5% per year. Okay, I mentioned consolidation a second ago, and uh, while we think consolidation may be necessary across the energy patch, it just may not happen quickly enough for some. There was widespread agreement among analysts and management that consolidation is necessary pretty much across the entire value chain, with many noting the uh, benefits of scale. Scale can help lead to lower costs, not only through the typical elimination of overlapping SG&A expense, but also by allowing producers to block up acreage to drill longer laterals, to apply better drilling and completion techniques to acquired properties, and to negotiate better oil field service prices. More and more assets are becoming available via bankruptcies, and the price on some of those may seem tempting. However, we believe there are several issues that may slow down the pace of future acquisitions. One is that companies reported bid-ask spreads. They are coming down, but they are still rather wide. And this could simply be the result of public companies thinking their assets are worth more than the stock ticker indicates. Financing is also a major issue. Companies really can't issue equity right now. And while many companies noted the debt market is opening up again in the energy patch, many industry players simply have too much debt as it is. Furthermore, more and more banks simply aren't willing to lend to companies anymore in the energy industry. There are and have been just too many defaulted loans in this sector, and ESG concerns are increasingly becoming a greater criteria in the loan process. For example, to which Bank recently announced they are cutting off lending to oil sands producers, largely because of environmental concerns. Finally, we note that the private equity market is virtually non-existent these days, and they've been a big buyer of assets in the past. So given all that, it could be the case that consolidation may not happen in mass for another 12 to 24 months until balance sheets get cleaned up. And while a surge in commodity prices would help improve that process of lowering debt, it would also drive up asset prices. So we just think that there could be a little bit of a waiting game afoot here. Another takeaway that I think is particularly important, which may not seem so on the surface, is that Pioneer Resources became the first U.S. energy company to embrace the concept of variable dividends. In fact, practically every E&P company with a more oil-focused portfolio was asked the same question about variable dividends, but so far Pioneer Resources is the only one to pull the trigger. We also note that Devon Energy declared a special dividend in conjunction with the closing of its Barnett Shale assets, but Pioneer so far is the only one actually going with a variable dividend structure for now. 
according to Pioneer, only about 10 companies in the entire S&P 500 pay a variable dividend. So this very much makes Pioneer a pioneer in the space. And that's a pun that's very much intended. Now, they're still working out the details, but starting in 2022, they would pay a smaller base dividend and a variable component predicated on cash flows that are generated by Brent prices above $45 per barrel. Roughly two-thirds of those companies who were asked about having a variable dividend said they would at least consider installing one at some point. Now, certainly every company would prefer to have a growing dividend base, but that's simply maybe a little more difficult to achieve in a commodity business. Variable dividends also allow companies to dedicate a certain amount of cash flow to paying down debt, which, as I mentioned before, is critical for many energy firms in the energy patch right now. So why do I even bring this up about variable dividends? Because the energy industry is very much out of favor with investors these days. The energy sector has fallen from roughly 12% of the S&P 500 to less than 4% over the last decade plus. So anything our sector can do to help attract more investors to the space is a good thing in our view. Just a few more takeaways here, and all of them are going to be influenced in some point by uh, governmental policy, the first being the U.S. presidential election. Now, the general media has been more focused on COVID-19 for much of this year, and rightfully so. But uh, by the way, there is a U.S. presidential election coming up here pretty soon. There seems to be far less coverage than normal about the election, given that we're just 10 weeks or so away from the actual election day. And I observe that as somebody who actually grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. Just at this point of the election, you normally see far more coverage than what we're seeing right now. Comments from the U.S. energy industry executives about the election have ranged anywhere from, I have absolutely nothing to say about it, to Harold Hamm at Continental Resources, who sternly declared that President Trump will be elected. And perhaps, in fact, he will. And it is still early. But every poll I've looked at recently has Joe Biden comfortably ahead, including one by Fox News, which, of course, tends to lean to the right. Biden is still formulating his platform, but his victory could have significant implications on the U.S. energy patch. And the three main ones asked about by analysts at quarter were potential fracking ban on federal acreage, taxes, and a pipeline permitting delays. As for the potential for a fracking ban or a curtailment of said activities on federal acreage, Hess noted that 23% of U.S. oil production is done on federal lands, with two-thirds of that being in the offshore, Gulf of Mexico. Onshore, New Mexico and Wyoming have the heaviest concentration of federal lands in the lower 48, which puts producers with Delaware Basin and Powder River Basin acreage more at risk, everything else being equal. Now, federal leases tend to be about an eighth, or 12.5%, with private acreage being twice that amount. So certainly, the economics of drilling on federal land is all the better, everything else being equal. Now, there are lots of other factors to that, but just based on royalties, federal acreage has its appeal. Now, obviously, companies with more federal acreage are at more risk. But one thing to keep in mind is there can be a big difference between the total amount of acreage companies have on federal lands and the percentage they have in core acreage. For example, federal lands account for about 25% of EOG resources' total acreage, but 50% of their total premium inventory. And I'm certainly not trying to pick on EOG here. They're very clear in their disclosure on this subject, which not all companies have been. Uh, lots of producers have uh, several years of federal permits in hand, but curtailing or eliminated drilling and completion activity on federal lands would obviously impact production going forward. Second, quickly on a tax increase, 
do know that eventually the United States is going to have to pay for this COVID-19 related deficit spending. And that's certainly not meant to be any kind of political statement on our part. It's just a mathematical fact. Obviously, higher taxes would not only have an impact on cash flows for businesses across all sectors, but also could impact the MLP structure and allowed returns for regulated business. Also, a possible delay, the third factor, a possible delay in the energy infrastructure approvals and permits. And I only say that it's a possibility because Trump has been pretty friendly on this front going forward. So simply changing from him could impact this as well. So this is all very much a work in progress, this election here. And we at NGI will continue to follow and report on the presidential election very closely in the weeks ahead. Uh, last two things. I do want to spend a couple of minutes on BP because of BP's influence of the U.S. natural gas industry. And BP really dropped the bombshell on the industry during their call. Uh, the company followed the lead of what their European peers, Shell and Equinor, did in the first quarter by slashing its dividend going forward. And this was a decision that was driven in large part by concerns over COVID-19 and a reduction in their long-term oil and gas price deck. Now, the dividend cut wasn't surprising, and in fact, was largely expected by Wall Street. What was surprising, however, was their decision to slash their fossil fuel production by 40% by 2030 and to grow the renewable electricity generation to 50 gigawatts by that year. To help drive both goals, they plan to sell between $11 and $13 billion in additional oil and gas producing properties. So what's noticeable to U.S. natural gas fans is that they said BPX, which is their unconventional U.S. E&P business, does remain core to their portfolio. And much of that portfolio is gas. And gas does remain a vital part of BP's planned transition to lower emissions. So BP is the number one marketer of natural gas in the United States at about 22 BCF a day, good for a 5.2% market share, according to FERC 552 data. Now, that's actually down a bit from their 5.8% share in 2018, but still comfortably ahead of Tenasca, Macquarie, and Royal Dutch Shell, the next three companies on the list. So the question is, is what will their U.S. gas volumes look like in the years ahead? Now, they could be impacted a little bit by the aforementioned asset sales, but again, natural gas remains a focus for them and will be driven by their desire to double the size of their global LNG portfolio. Moreover, their gas assets could be used as a backup to their growing renewable fleet and can serve as a feedstock to their goal of producing more hydrogen, which in this case would be blue hydrogen. Now, one area of concern from analysts, at least from a valuation standpoint, is that renewables don't tend to have the same rates of returns on invested capital as oil and gas. But keep in mind that that's on an absolute basis. Renewables tend to carry lower risk, so the risk-adjusted returns may be more in line over time. BB plans to achieve an 8 to 10% rate of return on renewables in the years ahead, but this requires massive scale, and it's certainly their goal to achieve that. By contrast, U.S. majors ExxonMobil and Chevron continue to shy away from renewables, and Chevron is even adding to its fossil fuel core through its acquisition of Noble Energy, which they announced in July. Perhaps the U.S. majors are banking on their European counterparts to abandon part of the oil and gas market which could give them a bigger share of a slower-growing pie. But uh, other U.S. entities are more fully embracing renewables, including several regulated utilities and pipeline companies, and they discussed their intentions on this front during the various uh, second-quarter calls. We note that some U.S. states are certainly ahead of others on this front, such as California, for example. But overall and collectively, the U.S. remains quite a ways behind Europe in terms of the energy transition.
Speaking of energy transition, my last point will be on hydrogen, which was uh, it's a very much a hot topic right now. And there are probably more questions asked about hydrogen this quarter than in all previous quarters combined. Now, this is all on the heels of Europe announcing its new hydrogen strategy in early July. Hydrogen certainly has some exciting potential given its abundance, its ability to power vehicles, its clean burning footprint, and the fact that it is compatible with much of the world's existing natural gas infrastructure. Not perfectly now, but with some modifications, it can, it can get there. The issue is that hydrogen itself doesn't occur by itself, so you have to separate it, and that is extremely expensive to do. Many U.S. companies reported they are interested in hydrogen and are starting to investigate its prospects more closely, but the general consensus seems to be that hydrogen is still decades away from being a mainstream fuel alternative. Now, this is something that, given its interest, we will continue to cover in the days and weeks ahead throughout our various publications, so stay tuned there. That's all I have for today, and I know it was a lot, so thanks for sticking with us. As a reminder, we have separate 22nd quarter earnings takeaway calls that focus on shale, LNG, and Mexico up on our website, and those are available on the same platform you use to download this podcast. Also, as a reminder, for more information on our various services, please go to www.naturalgasintel.com backslash podcast. On behalf of everyone at Natural Gas Intelligence, I'd like to thank you once again for your time today. And wherever you are, please stay safe, take care, and talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.